Well, good morning, Crossing Church. How are you doing? Doing good? There is no place that I would rather be than right here with you right now, spending time in God's Word together. There just isn't a better thing that we can do, and I'm so glad that we have this opportunity together, and I'm so glad that all of our campuses all across this region are joining with us. We're joining with you as one family, one church in multiple locations, everyone that's inside, everyone that's online. So thankful that you're a part of the family as well and that we can be together just worshiping, serving, loving the Lord and just experiencing his provision because that's what he does. And uh, speaking of provision, I mean, we're in the Christmas season, but there's so many things going on in the world right now, so many things that need to be addressed and the people of God need to do that. One of those that I'm sure that you've been praying about and thinking about is this uh, tornadoes, these tornadoes that went all the way across the Midwest, particularly hitting the state of Kentucky, mostly in rural areas. And I want you to know, particularly thankful for all those of you that, that give to the crossing, that uh, you've already participated in the relief effort that's happening there. Uh, the crossing's already sent $10,000 and uh, to help out, and that, that, that's uh, your money being uh, put to use in that way. Uh, we have a friend there, his name's Dave Hamlin in Kentucky, and uh, has a Christian church there, Shelby Christian Church, and he's working with a group called IDES, that stands for International Disaster Emergency Service. It's a ministry of the Christian church to go into uh, places that have been hit like this and minister to their immediate needs. And that's so important because you need a good assessment on what's going on, figure out what people need, and then minister to those needs at that, as they are appropriate. What I really like particularly about uh, what the crossing's doing here is there are so many of these little towns that don't make the news, that were just devastated. And IDES is concentrating on those towns. So uh, I want you to know that that's happening. And if you want to do more, if you want to participate more, just get with your campus pastor. We'll get more inf information to you, and we'll be assessing to see if we need to do more as well. But can we just stop for a moment and just pray uh, for these communities and these families during uh, the Christmas season that are dealing with this? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name we pray for your mercy and for your grace and for your hands to uphold people that feel like they're falling, that they're losing, people right now mourning the loss of loved ones, people right now dealing with the loss of their memories, their homes, their communities, people that are displaced right now. Pray, Father, that your mighty hand would just minister to them and they would feel the prayers of your people surrounding them and encouraging them, even as you, Heavenly Father, encourage them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm kind of on this, I'm, I'm kind of on this Christmas movie kick right now. You know, a couple weeks ago, I, I talked to you about uh, Polar Express, and uh, well, I'm still watching uh, the movies. And I got to ask you a question, uh, and you, you can discuss this amongst yourselves, all of our locations. Who's the best movie Santa? 
Who is the best movie Santa? Go ahead, ask each other. Like, what do you think? What, 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 what do you think is the best movie Santa? Okay. I think the best movie Santa is the original Miracle on 34th Street Santa. Okay, we're not talking about the one, the the Richard Attenborough one, but the one that was before that. As a matter of fact, just a little little, uh, trivia, it is the only time a Santa ever won an Academy Award for portraying Santa. It's true, Miracle of 34th Street. But I, I, I may be changing my mind a little bit, especially while uh, I was preparing for this sermon because I'm preparing for it and I watched the movie Christmas Chronicles. There are two of them. And, uh, and Kurt Russell plays Santa Claus. And I was like, he does that really well. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why I really like it. It's not because Goldie Hawn plays his wife, who's actually his wife in real life. And so, you know, uh, she's a great Mrs. Claus. It's not that. It's that he doesn't hide who he is from anybody. Like every other, every other movie with Santa Claus in it, he, he's got to like be this ninja Santa. Like nobody can know. It's got to stay in mystery. But Kurt Russell's, no, I mean, he, you know, he, he gets put in jail and he's trying to talk to the to the uh, officer, and he starts pulling out toys from, uh, uh, and he's like, well, yeah, that's what you wanted when you were eight. That's what you wanted when you were nine. That's what you wanted when you were, t-. I mean, they actually see his flying reindeer. And they, you know, and the, the, what's amazing about it is even though they see all this stuff, they still refuse to believe that he's Santa Claus. And I'll tell you why that hit me. Because people will refuse to believe even when the evidence is obvious. Not not, not necessarily with regards to Santa Claus, but with regards to who Jesus Christ is. They will refuse to believe even though the evidence is obvious. And when we get behind the curtain, we begin to watch our doubts diminish and our faith begins to find its feet on the facts. And that's really what I want uh, to share with you uh, right here as you are right now entering into uh, the, the Christmas weekend coming up, right? And it, and, it, and it starts here. My faith is not an ignorant faith. Your faith doesn't need to be an ignorant faith. My question is, is it? Like, are, are you just, you know, hoping that the things that you're believing is true? Or does, do your feet find there a firm place to stand on the facts? So, you know, when I say that Christmas is all about the birth of Jesus Christ, and I base my whole life on that, is that just because I want to believe in something, I want to manufacture something because I want to have some hope, but it's pretty much just a story like a fairy tale? Absolutely not. That's the furthest thing from the truth. It's that I have this firm place to stand where it would actually take me more faith to discount it than to just accept it as the truth. So when we talk about the birth of Jesus, <laughs> do you know what we're saying? We're actually talking about the birth of the Son of God. Think about that. Think about what you're proclaiming here. 
You're, you're actually believing that God had a child, that God had a human child. It's a pretty big thing to believe, right? And if you want to go just a little bit further, that child that was born is actually God himself. That's what you believe. When you say Jesus Christ is born, God had a child, a human child, and that child was actually God himself. Some of you are going, whoo, that's confusing. I'm not confused. And you know why? It's because I've been behind the curtain. And when you get behind the curtain, those mysteries reveal themselves. And you realize that it's, it's not a hope or an empty wish. It's just a truth. And I have a calm assurance that comes from having that truth embedded in me because of what I read in God's Word as I go behind the curtain. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 11 to 17. Listen to this. It says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, now this isn't about you, this is about King David, okay? And this is Nathan the prophet prophesying to King David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. Wow. I will be his father. He will be my son. And when he does wrong, that's interesting, isn't it? I will punish him with a rod wielded by men. A rod wielded by men. With floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, that was the king before King David, whom I removed from before you. Your house, David, and your kingdom, David, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Now, like I told you, this is Nathan the prophet speaking to King David about his throne and his legacy. And I love the fact that it's Nathan the prophet because we have another story about Nathan the prophet and King David. So some of you may know the seedy, dirty laundry story of King David who stayed home when all of his army went to war and he saw a woman taking a bath on a roof not very far from him. Her name was Bathsheba and he lusted after her even though she was one of his best friend's wife. And because he was the king, he calls her to come to his palace and then has this relationship with, it, with her that produces a child and then he tries to cover it up by asking his friend to come home from battle, Uriah, to come home from battle, but he refuses to go into his own house and spend time with his wife while all these other men are out fighting uh, for the freedom of Israel. So David isn't able to cover up the pregnancy. 
So then he decides to have Uriah put in the front line to have him killed so that he will die in that battle and then his widow will be free to marry David. And he has it all taken care of. He has it all covered up and nobody will know until a prophet named Nathan comes into the throne room. And he looks at David on his throne and he says, listen, I got a story to tell you. There are two men, both shepherds. One has all these flocks and herds, very wealthy man. The other one only has one sheep, just one little sheep, a lamb. And it's like a pet to him. It's all he can afford. And they're so close it even drinks from his own cup. And his neighbor who owns all these flocks and herds had a visitor come from a foreign country and he wanted to serve him dinner but instead of taking from all of his flocks and herds he went over to his neighbors who had that one little lamb and took it and killed it and prepared it and served it as a meal to this visitor from a foreign land and David gets up from his throne and he goes such a man ought to die And Nathan, Nathan points, a, points a bony finger at David and he said, You're the man! Wow. What a story. To think that that was Nathan the prophet who pronounced this curse on David. And yet, in spite of that, later on, here is a blessing that is pronounced on David, his throne, and his kingdom. And there are some incredible revelations here that you and I need to dive down into in order to get behind the curtain. The first thing that we find out is that this person that's being prophesied about is going to be David's offspring, his own flesh and blood, it says, right? Second, we find out that it's going to be a forever throne and a forever kingdom. Third, we find out that there's going to be a son-father-father-son relationship with God himself. Fourth, we find out that this person will do quote-unquote wrong and then be punished by human hands. And finally, we, find, we learn that the love of God will never be taken away from him. Now, this was written about a thousand years before the birth of Christ. This is when Nathan shared these words with David. So I want you to fast forward a thousand years. Jesus is born. And we've already discovered a lot about the, this fulfilled prophecy. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about Messiah and what that meant. We went through some prophecies. Last week, Clayton talked about the tabernacle and everything that was imaged, these pictures and prophecies that are connected with the birth of Christ there. All of these things happening behind the curtain, right? But on this side of the curtain, where you and I exist and live right now, there is so much more that confirms my faith in this person. So I want us to go back to the second Samuel passage and take it apart. So the first prophecy in that group of scriptures is that he will be David's offspring, David's own flesh and blood, right? We've already talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Because in Luke chapter 3 and in Matthew chapter 1, we have the only surviving genealogy of any Jewish person, and it's the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph and through Mary. Now that's important 
Because Joseph was not Jesus' natural father. Because Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. But he was still his legal father. And Joseph was of the house and the lineage of David. And Mary was of the house and the lineage of David. So he had a legal right. Jesus had a legal right to the throne through his legal father, Joseph. But he had a blood right to the throne through his mother, Mary. 100% of the blood that flowed through Jesus' veins was his mom's, was Mary's. So that just covers the first prophecy that Nathan mentions. But what about the other four? Okay, let's go forward. We're going to go forward from the birth of Jesus, 33 years, to just a few days before he goes to the cross for our sins. And just a few days before, on Sunday morning, there is this event that's recorded in the Gospels called Palm Sunday. Let's read that together from Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's Zechariah 9.9. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. Very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed him shouted, Hosanna. Everybody say that? Hosanna to the Son of David. The son of David. Don't forget that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now we call this Sunday Palm Sunday. We call it Palm Sunday because people cut palms from the trees and they put them on the road so that the donkey's hooves would not uh, slip when Jesus was riding. And, and there's a reason for that. It's because it's a very steep road downward and upward, okay? I want you to kind of see that because Jesus is approaching Jerusalem from the east and uh, from the Mount of Olives and from Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And he's coming east and he's going to approach the eastern gate. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, this is what the eastern gate looks like. It looks just like this. Okay, I took this picture and used to not ever even get, be able to get close to the eastern gate. There's a Muslim cemetery all in front of it, but now they have actually built a, a, a walkway where you can actually get this close. So this gate faces the east, all right? Now, if you were to stand and notice about this gate, can you go through this gate? 
No, you can't. The original eastern gate is actually beneath here. This gate is actually built. This was this is this gate's five six hundred years old. It's built on an original gate that's underneath. That is also shut like this one. All right. Now, if you stood here and you turned around and you're looking back to the east, this is what you'd see. Okay. This is the Mount of Olives. This right here is the Church of All Nations. Inside the Church of All Nations, there's a rock called the Rock of Agony. A tradition says this is where Jesus prayed and sweat blood, right? If you look all around the Church of All Nations, if you look this way and you look this way and you look over here and back over here, those are all olive trees. Because what you're looking at is the Garden of Gethsemane. This is the Kidron Valley. This is all the Garden of Gethsemane. And up here is the Mount of Olives. All right? Now let's just say we turn back around, we walk through the eastern gate that you can't walk through because it's shut. What would it look like on the other side? This is the Temple Mount. Okay? And you can see the double archway right here. You're on the inside of the eastern gate and you're standing on this flat surface called the Temple Mount. Again, this is a Mount of Olives in the distance. And if you turned around and looked back toward the west, this is what you see. This is the Dome of the Rock or the Mosque of Omar and uh, where many people believe that was where the original temple uh, stood and the beautiful gate was in front of it. Why am I showing you that? Because everything Jesus is doing on Palm Sunday is super important. And if you want to get behind the curtain, you need to understand exactly what's going on. All right? Now, we've already talked about the first prophecy, that he would be the son of David, right? Let's go to the second prophecy. Second prophecy says he will have a forever throne and a forever kingdom. Kingdom. Throne. What are those words associated with? A king, right? A king has a kingdom. A king has a throne. Are they actually calling Jesus a king? Yes, he's coming as a king in every way that could be recognized as a king. You know how kings would come into their capital in that day and age? They would come in riding the colt of a donkey. That's right. It was obvious to everyone what Jesus was doing and what he was saying when he was riding the colt of a donkey. We already quoted Zechariah 9.9, right? Your king is coming to you on the colt of a donkey. If you read 1 Kings 1.33, it'll tell you that David instructed his son Solomon to ride the colt of a donkey to be recognized as king and successor to him. Look at the direction he's going. He's going to the west. He's coming from the east. He's going to the west. Why? Because he's going straight to the temple. I want you to understand something. Jesus was not being misunderstood. Jesus wanted everybody to know he was coming as king. He was claiming that through everything that was happening. We can go a little further than that. We will in a second. Third prophecy says that this relationship with God would be a father-son relationship. That's a big statement. 
We need to understand what people were saying and what they were singing when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Because they weren't just talking or yelling or shouting. They were singing. And they were singing a particular hymn. And that hymn is called the Hallel. I know it because they're using the term Hosanna. The term Hosanna is for the Hallel. It comes from Psalm 118. Now, why is that a big deal? First of all, you're only allowed to sing the Hallel at one time a year. And that is at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And that happens in October. But this is April. Passover's in April. They're supposed to sing it in October. What in the world are they doing? You think, well, that's a big deal. You were singing the song at the wrong time? No. Listen, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths was where all of the Jewish people would come to Jerusalem and they would make these makeshift shacks and they would live in these shacks for a period of time all around the temple. It commemorated when they were wandering in the wilderness and there was the tabernacle in the middle and they all encamped around the tabernacle. What it means is that they were dwelling with God and God was dwelling with them. So when you say Hosanna... You're singing a song about God being with them, them being with God. This is why the priests got mad, and they said, you need to tell your people to be quiet. And Jesus says what? Hey, you guys, calm down. No, Jesus says, if they're quiet, the rocks themselves are going to cry out. What was being said here from the priest's standpoint was blasphemy. This was Jesus saying that he was equal with God. What was Jesus saying? I am equal with God. Not, as, not only is he, is he coming as a king, he is talking about this father-son relationship. The word Hosanna literally means save us. Save us to the son of David. They recognize that he's the son of David. They know about his genealogy. And they're saying, you're the Savior. Come and save us. Hosanna. The people are making a proclamation connecting Jesus to God himself. Look at the words they're saying. Not just the song, but the words. They recognize him as the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. Which means that they're thinking about 2 Samuel 7. You're the son of David, and you've come to save us. You're the one that was prophesied. You're the rightful king. They're praising God for his presence. Hosanna in the highest, because they see God's presence and Jesus' presence as the same thing. Wow. Fourth prophecy. And this is the one that trips us up. It really shouldn't, but it does. He will do wrong, quote-unquote wrong, and be punished by human hands, right? So this can trip us up because we're going, wait a minute, hold on, Jesus never sinned. So how could he do wrong? It's actually not that hard. Let's go back 700 years before Jesus is born to the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. 
We considered him. We considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment, there it is again, that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we're healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity iniquity of us all. It's beginning to form a perfect script, isn't it? Everything was known. Everything was foreseen. Look at how we see it on the other side of the curtain. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin when he does wrong. When he does wrong. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, we can go deeper. You want to go deeper for just a second? No charge. This is Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 43, 1-5. Look what it says. Then the man brought me to the gate facing east. Oh yeah, you know about that. You've seen a picture of it, right? And I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with His glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had when He came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple." Now, when you drill down in the book of Ezekiel and continue studying, you're going to find out all kinds of stuff. What Ezekiel says is that the prince, uses the term prince, will bring an offering to present at the temple, and he will bring it through the eastern gate, which is important because every other offering that comes to the temple has to come from the north or the south. Only one person is allowed to bring an offering through the eastern gate. And that's royalty. That's the prince. He presents, this is what it says in Ezekiel, he will present the sacrifice to the priests. And then the priests will administer the sacrifice. Then, after the sacrifice has been administered, the prince will leave by the eastern gate. Everybody else that goes to the temple has to come from a different direction. Only the prince gets to come through the eastern gate. And then Ezekiel prophesies that the gate, the eastern gate, will be shut. Because it is for the prince, reserved for him and him alone. Wow. And you go there today, guess what? That gate's shut. The gate that's below it, if you excavate it, it's shut. Nobody can go through those gates. It's reserved. Jesus was and is the only true king. He is the son of God. He is the son of David. He is the priest. I mean, he is the prince who brings the sacrifice to the priest. He is the sacrifice himself. 
He is the two goats for the day of atonement. He is both the sacrifice uh, of atonement and the Azazel, or the scapegoat, completely innocent, but suffering as if he did wrong for the sins of us all. How beautiful is this picture? How absolutely perfect is this picture? How can I not believe it? All I have to do is look behind the curtain. It's right there for me. The fifth and final prophecy, God's love will never be taken away from him. If we go past Isaiah 53, 4 to 6, and you go to verse 10 through 12, this is what it says. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring, you're his offspring, and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he's suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is where you find the love of God. You want to find the love of God? This is the only place you're going to find it. It's in Jesus Christ. Because when you find an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you find the love of Almighty God. And listen to me, it is not a leap of faith. It's a step of faith. Not when you look behind the curtain. It's not ignorant or naive. Do not refuse to believe, even when the evidence is so obvious. Watch your doubt diminish, and your faith will find its feet on the facts Christmas isn't just about the fact that Jesus came. It's about why he came, how he came, and the difference that it makes. I want you to think about that as we move to a time of decision. My favorite place in Israel is Caesarea Philippi where Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the Son, the living God. It's a beautiful place. Love it. This is my second favorite place. To stand there at the eastern gate. You see, when I stand there, I look backward. And I see Jesus. I see Him coming west. On the Mount of Olives, this very steep road that goes down through the Garden of Gethsemane and the Kidron Valley and then up to the Eastern Gate. And when Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, he sees the gate. And behind the gate, he sees the temple. And behind the temple, short distance, is Golgotha. He sees it. He knows what's coming. He knows that there will be saying, Hosanna. He knows later on, that same week, they're going to say, crucify him. He knows that. He's still coming. He's not stopping. He's not stopping for anything. He's coming. 
And he takes that ride and he goes through that gate. He being the sacrifice and the prince. And he's given over to the priests, the religious leaders. And under the power of the Roman government, they arrest him, they beat him, abuse him. And they take him all the way to the cross, to the place of the skull. And as they lift him up on that cross, he faces east. And as he's bleeding and sweating and dying for your sins, he can see the temple. And he can see the eastern gate. And he can see the Mount of Olives. He gives his life on that cross for you and for me. And they bury him in a tomb right there. But on Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. And he showed himself alive until 50 days after his passion. Or 40 days, excuse me, 40 days after his passion. And he walked by the temple. And he walked through the eastern gate. Down through the garden of Gethsemane where he sweat, sweat blood. Up on the Mount of Olives. He turned around. And while he was speaking to them, he started to lift up in the air until a cloud received him out of their sight. And two angels were there. And they said, why are you looking into heaven? The same Jesus that you've seen go. He's coming back just like you saw him. And do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that there's going to come a day when Jesus, riding a white horse, who is called faithful and true, who has a robe dipped in blood, that name written on him that no one knows except himself, King of kings and Lord of lords, riding that white horse with all of the multitudes and armies of heaven with him. And the Bible says that in that day, his feet will stand on the mount of olives and it says that the mount of olives will be ripped in half and he will walk he'll take that steed he won't walk he'll take that steed down through the Kidron Valley through the Garden of Gethsemane and that gate will not be shut anymore because he will blow a hole through that gate because he's coming as the prince and he will take his place on his throne, the throne of his father David, and reign. And do you know what I say to that? Even so come, Lord Jesus. Come on. Take us home. Take us to the place that you've prepared for us. There are some of you here today... There's some of you that have never come into an intimate personal relationship with Jesus Christ and I am telling you that is where you find the love of God. And if you want to make a decision, today is the day. Now is the pointed time. Right now 
make a decision and come to Christ, there'll be someone standing right over there by that baptistry that'll walk you through your next steps. Don't let this moment pass you by. Many of you are here today and you've made that decision for Jesus Christ, but you know what? All the noise of this world and all of the urgent things have completely drowned out what is important. That Jesus Christ is born. Born to live. Born to die. Born to rise again. Born to go back to His Father. Born to come back for all of the Father's lost children to take them home. And maybe today is the day you come up here to these steps and you say, Lord, help me to get past all the noise of the season and instead remember it's all about you. And that'll get you through the hardest times. Would you think about that as we stand? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, take this moment. It's your moment. They're all your moments. Help us, Father, to agree with you and recognize it. Just recognize it right now and let you have your way in it. For some of us, Father, that is coming to you and saying, I need a Savior. You're saying, Hosanna. You're saying, save us, not just us, me, me. To the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Help us to recognize you, to see what is obvious in Jesus' name. Amen.